Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Be Her Village podcast. My name is Caitlin Legreas, and I'm the founder of Be Her Village. Be Her Village is an online gift registry for what moms really need, support, not stuff. We're talking to providers and people who care for moms in their pregnancy, their birth, their postpartum. We're talking to real moms and hearing their stories and really just getting into all the good stuff that comes along with new parenthood. So check us out, tune in, and let us know what you think. Hi, I'm Janelle, and we are Be Her Village, a gift registry for expecting parents to get the funds they need to pay for the support services they deserve. So just like you might ask your family and friends to pay for your burp cloths, rocking chair, or a stroller with four-wheel drive, you can now just as easily have people contribute to your support services like a doula, prenatal yoga classes, or childbirth ed. Expecting parents can create a registry for free at beherville.com. This episode is a fiery one, which we love to see. Caitlin McGreas, founder of Be Her Village, talks with Maggie Runyon, LD nurse, birth advocate, and founder of Your Birth Partners, a nonprofit that aims to cultivate inclusive, collaborative birth care communities rooted in autonomy, respect, and equity. They chat about the hospital system, how and where it's failing, and what birth workers can do to create lasting change, even if it's small. I'll link all of Maggie's info in the show notes, along with the Facebook group that she runs if you're interested in joining her mission. If you want a more supported pregnancy, birth, and postpartum, create a Be Her Village registry to fund the care that you want and that you deserve. Thank you again for listening and for all of your support. It really means the world to us. Enjoy the episode. Yeah, so I am Maggie Runyon. Uh, by trade, I am a labor and birth or labor and delivery nurse. I have done a lot in the perinatal OB space uh, through the years. I've done different things kind of as a community organizer, leading circles, teaching childbirth education, prenatal yoga, lactation counselor, and doula training and all this stuff. So I have tried my hands at trying to figure out like, okay, how do I show up best for those who are in my care mm-hmm. by kind of adding a bunch of different <laughs> letters and acronyms after my name. But, uh, you know, at the at the base of it, I am just a, a birth advocate. I want to see us change how we provide birth care for the better in our country. I want to see us live up to the expectations that, you know, families have for us when they come in and, and just want to be treated well. They want to be respected in their choices and they are expecting us to be there and provide care rather than subject them to a million policies. So oh, I love that. that's the long nutshell, but that's who I am. Yeah, that's beautiful. And that's actually why we're here. I am so, so excited about this because our goal, we could talk probably about a lot of different things. And <laughs> we are setting out today to talk about one really specific thing, which is if you, if you, Maggie, could create change within the hospital system, if somebody who was in power said, hey, we need to make this better, we need to make hospital birth better within the system as is, how would you change it? And I am Mm. so curious about that because I have been to, I've lost count, but somewhere between 100 and 200 births and most of them in the hospital. And I have lots of ideas about how we could change the system. And I remember you saying when we spoke um, off the air that you you want to be able to think about changing the system from within without burning it to the ground. And I think that was where I was like, oh, we need to talk about this then. Because there are, I mean, there's a temptation to burn the system to the ground because it's really quite honestly just, it's it's killing people, it's it's harmful, it's traumatizing in many ways. But I don't think it needs to be really like 
scrapped completely. There is a lot of, of like little things we can do that can have huge impacts. And I would love to hear what would labor and delivery look like if Maggie was in charge? Yeah. Oh, well, this is obviously this is such a good question and we could probably talk literally the whole day, um, but you had an eight hour podcast episode. So I'll, I'll endeavor to break it down. This deeply resonates with five-year-old me whose goal was to be queen of the world one day. But that being said, I, I will I, I will share this from, you know, what I gleaned, but also acknowledging that, like, these are not my original ideas. You know, mm-hmm. these are things I picked up from listening and learning to a lot of different people over the years who have a wealth of perspectives. And I'll, I'll mention people as it, you know, strikes me. But, you know, I think this is something that sometimes it feels lonely in this work, feeling like you're advocating for change in a system that is so huge. You know, like there are three to four million people each year who have a baby in our country, which is a lot of people, you know, and it can feel like, oh, there is, there's no way to possibly impact that many people. And it can be easy to feel really, just really alone and overwhelmed by that. And I have certainly had (laughs) dips in, you know, in my career where I felt like, okay, this isn't, it's not, you know, it can't be done, but I have been so lucky to find other people to connect with deeper community with other advocates who are out here. And obviously people who have been out here doing this for decades working on this. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it is helpful to realize that like we are all part of this bigger system and that these changes that I'm going to kind of lay out and the things that I I think would benefit everyone who's in it, like some of them are, are big issues and, and they take they will take a lot of like policy change and legislation and stuff like that. But so much of it comes down to people over policies. I think if I had a tagline for mm. birth care going forward, that's what it would be. So I, I think when we start looking at like, how are we supposed to show up for this? How can I possibly impact this when there's so many things that are kind of feel like they're working against us? It's remembering like the power that each of us have as one person to impact everyone else who we come in contact with. And that's true every day in all of, you know, in all the ways that our lives mingle, but, you know, especially in birth, which is this huge transformational piece for people realizing that like, I might not be able to change 3 million births this year, but I can change the 30 that I'm a part of. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm going to focus on that. And so the things that I have found really helpful for that, I think I would put them broadly into kind of the I guess if I had a bucket, it would be trauma-informed collaborative care. Mm. So that is what I see as like the new standard that has to happen in birth care. And the um, nonprofit organization that I founded, Your Birth Partners, that is very much what we are very mission-driven around that. Um, Because I think one of the ways we've gotten caught up is in the hierarchy of birth care. Right. And, you know, back in the early 1900s, when kind of modern medicine, as you know, as we know, it was starting to, you know, rise up and there's a lot more physician education happening and kind of this whole power dynamic was happening within healthcare. And physicians kind of rose to the top and then were were very quick to and in many unfortunate ways to kind of malign the care that was provided by other individuals around birth, particularly um, particularly black midwives who had been delivering many, 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 many of the children in this country. And so as they kind of rose up, and some of those were, I think, from intentionally negative practices mm-hmm. that they involved. And I think some of it was out of a, a hubris and a just misunderstanding the power that we have. 
in birth and thinking that more is always better. (laughs) So I think there's a combination of things there that as we look to change it without completely burning it to the ground, that we have to acknowledge like that, that foundation is there. So there is that foundation of like, of, of racism, racism, of of class, heteropatriarchy, all of that stuff. Like it's there. I mean, of the idea that when hospitals sort of became the place to give birth, it was because it, it was sold to women as this like clean, hygienic, Mm -hmm. pain-free experience for rich white women. And the people giving birth at home were poor black women and or just poor people, but largely poor black women and with the granny midwives, that sort of thing. And now there's this very interesting dynamic that has flipped almost where now hospitals are where poor people can access care and the outcomes are abysmal, right? And then and way more dangerous for people of color or black women because they're dying at rates four times as many as white women, 12 times as many as white women in in New York City. And then home birth has now become this safer and more uh, less accessible thing because you need thousands of dollars out of pocket to pay for it. It's it's really unbelievable how how this switch happens, but it the the reason that switch sort of maintains is because it's rooted in racism it's rooted in classism it's rooted in this idea that there's a two-tiered access system so that not everybody is getting the same care it depends on your socioeconomic factors and it's you kind of can't have this conversation right without setting it up through that lens and I really appreciate you sort of bringing that history and that lens into this like we can't just talk about how do how do we best do this? It's how do we best do this by understanding where we went wrong in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. And I and I also I always want to highlight too, like I I do not think physicians are the bad guys. I have a lot of great friends who who practice medicine very holistically, who are incredibly patient centered and trauma informed. And I think a lot of times in these conversations, it can come across as if like it's it's easy to have a villain, right? Yeah. But the OB in particular is not like the villain of this conversation. It is the system that we have built around this. And that, and as a, you know, as a nurse who, you know, was trained in this, like that was part of my nursing education as well. You know, nurses were trained to be the handmaidens of doctors, of physicians. And so, so much of our training is built on that same racism, classism, sexism, (laughs) patriarchal stuff. So it's- There's like nursing books currently in use in nursing education programs that talk about the pain levels of different races as science, as like Asians experience this and black people experience this and white people, this and Hispanic people, this. And it's like, it's jaw droppingly racist and just wrong. And it's, it's 2022 and this is still in practice. Nurses are being trained um, about that. And it's just, it's horrific. So yeah. with with that like understanding of the roots of the issues that are happening in the United States in our maternal care system, and I always like to put system in air quotes because is it really a system or is it like a for-profit healthcare market that like is yeah. a smattering of options that really fails many of the people that need care? What would you change if you, if we had like your birth partner's L&D because mm-hmm. like this is like one of my bucket list things that'll probably never happen but who knows that like be her village blows up I become a billionaire and I in my billionaireness instead of being evil I would 
I would just yeah. go buy an L&D room or what. I don't know what that looks like, buying an L&D room. Yeah. But, like, I would buy or fund or whatever, take over a hospital and put a model into place that looks evidence-based, that looks supportive, that looks trauma-informed, that looks collaborative. So what does that actually look like? Can we get into, like, the nuts and bolts of, like, how is, yeah. how how does your vision look versus what's going on now? Sure. So first and foremost, and I think the ultimate thing is that it's patient centered. Mm -hmm. So patients, the birthing person is the expert in their experience. And I can say that five times in a row because it is very antithetical to how most of us are trained within the nursing medical, even often in, you know, midwifery kind of spaces of formal education in this country there is a lot of emphasis on on the expertise of whoever the you know medical professional is whoever the provider is and and that is important obviously it's important i you know in some ways that the death of expertise is, is a big issue you know we have to trust people who have gone to school and who have studied things and all of that but trust is something that is that is earned and it's not just given based on a title or a degree that someone has. And so I think in order to have a relationship with those who are in our care, we have to make it about them. We have to center it around them and not around our preconceived belief about what a, in air quotes, you know, a good birth is. Because what I have seen from from my own birth, from supporting hundreds of births over, you know, the years in hospitals and in various healthcare systems, out of hospital, at home, every single person out there has a different meaning for what they want their birth to look like and what they want this birth that they are having right now to look like. Because I also don't know anyone who has had the same birth twice or who wanted the exact same thing in each of their births. And so I think if we were to ground care and someone, you know, shows up, to wherever their place of birth is, but for the purposes of this conversation, it's a hospital. They walk in and we just start by saying, Caitlin, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so excited to be a part of you welcoming your baby into the world. I'd like to go over with you what you want this experience to be. And obviously, ideally, this conversation has also happened eight times previously throughout yeah. prenatal care, because I think that's one of the other big things is that so many of our interventions and stuff focus on what to do once you get to L&D which is important. But we have this huge opportunity. We are pregnant for months. Mm -hmm. You know, most people know that their baby's coming where they're going to have at least six, seven months that they can prepare for it. And I think so often because of the way, again, that the system has been set up, folks feel like, yeah, I just show up to these appointments. I don't really question anything because I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know. Bop, bop, bop. And because of insurance in our country and how reimbursement works, appointment times are this big. Yeah. And so people do not have time to get into questions. Providers do not have time to formulate the relationships that they that they often want to right. because, okay, well, if, if everything's fine, let's keep moving. You know, So we don't set this up to let people know that like, there's a million ways this could go. Mm -hmm. What do you, what do you want? Or what do you really not want? Because sometimes that's just as good to know. You know, you're not sure eh, anything would, all these things would be fine, but I really don't want this. And that's really important. I think we don't take the time and Pregnant people don't realize that that's something that they can do, mm -hmm. that like they can and should have feelings about this. You know, they have feelings about maybe how they're decorating, you know, where their baby's going to sleep, the nursery, whatever. You know, they're allowed to have feelings about their registry, what they want to have. Like we are used to being able to like plan so many pieces of our life. And while you certainly can't plan, you can't plan life, you can't plan birth, but you can set up reasonable, a reasonable container around like, 
yeah, this is what it ideally, this, this is what it looks like. Or at least you've been educated about options and you understand that. And that just doesn't happen. And we don't circle around. So many times consent conversations happen just like, yep, this is what I recommend doing. Yes. Yes. And, and the, it isn't a question. The only answer is yes. And that is not okay. And that is not trauma-informed. It's not patient well, Honestly, they don't even necessarily say this is what I recommend. Often nurses and doctors and sometimes midwives, really depending on the provider, will state something as if it's a directive. And it's actually a choice. It's get in the yeah. bed. It's I'm going to yep. break your water. It's we're going to start Pitocin. It's it's time to have a C-section. It's not here is what I'm thinking and why I'm thinking. And I'd like to include you in the discussion. It's not informed consent and there is no choice. And like you said, there's really no space given for there to be a response because it's not, it's not offered as a question. When I am doing doula work, I'm sitting down with people saying that like a good portion of my work is literally reframing what the staff at the hospital is saying to you in the form of a question. So like get in the bed. Are you comfortable where you are or would you like to lay in the bed? This is, this is a choice right here. And often, more often than not, people check in and realize that the position they're in is very comfortable and it's part of what's helping them manage their sensations, their pain, their experience. And it's, and it's often not something that they'd want to change. Um, and if they do, it's like, well, why, right? And what's the alternative and what can we do? But it creates these, these conversations that our system isn't really set up for because the power structure is, and it's, we're really like groomed for it in these appointments. They're fast. We go in, the doctor or the medical provider holds all of the knowledge about our body, about our baby, about our safety. And we are not relied on for that wisdom, for that knowledge, for understanding if we're okay or not okay. And it really, it shifts. It's hard to really overstate how much that power dynamic shifts our experience as we're going through it. Yeah. 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 But it, it's huge, you know, and I think, like you said, I think it's just, it's so much, it's not even, it, it truly is not even a question. One of the programs we've been working on with your birth partners in combination with Mandy Irby, who's the birth nurse and Paula Richards, who's nurse Brown girl and IG for everyone who's like getting on their phone right now. Um, they are two other fantastic labor and birth nurses who I've connected with. And we've created this program called the trauma informed birth nurse. Um, and while this isn't an advertisement for that program, so much of the foundation of that has been in understanding and shifting our language. Mm-hmm. So much of it is laying out scripts, walking through case studies and helping other nurses to understand and to see where those holes are, to see how like, oh, that way we've always done stuff where Caitlin, you come in and I say, hey, Caitlin, I'm magging with your nurse. Here's your gown. We're just going to have you put that on openings to the back and you're going to pop and go give us a quick uh, urine sample and then just get in the bed. I'm going to put you on the monitors and I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions and we'll go from here. So that maybe didn't sound unfriendly. Like, sure. I've obviously said that spiel 8,000 times, you know, whatever. But there was no choice there. There was there was no question. I don't know. Do you even want to get in the gown? Do you, do you have to pee? Why do I need a sample? Why am I, what am I doing with that sample? What do I have to sit in a bed? How long does baby have to be a monitor? Like none of those are, I'm not opening up a question. Whereas the like patient centered approach to that might be like, Hey, Caitlin, I'm Maggie. Uh, I use she, her pronouns. Or what I'd really say is, Hey, I'm Maggie. I use she, her pronouns. I'm your nurse today. What would you like for me to call you while you're here? Mm. And then you say, Oh, Caitlin or Katie or wh- whatever. Mrs. Whoever. I mean, you can literally be anyone you want, but instead of just assuming that familiarity yeah. or assuming that I know your story or what you want to go by, you know, starting right there. Yeah. And then, 
Okay, so you know, from what I am seeing in your chart, you're here to start an induction. Can you just tell me a little bit more about you know what's gone on and why you're here, so that they know? Right, I have an idea of what's going on. I not just walking into the room, but also I want to hear from you, from your words. Why are you here? Because I've done this before, and people are like, I have no idea why I'm here. Mm. Okay, and how can you how can you give informed consent if you right you know and you're like oh that you're in and what you're consenting to. Absolutely. So obviously, right, we missed a step there. Okay. And that can be from, again, there's so many different systemic failures that happened in that, you know, thing, but, oh, okay. So let's stop there. But, you know, so you're like, oh yeah. Oh, well, you know, like my due date was last Tuesday. So I'm, you know, just getting ready to help, help the baby come on out. Oh, okay, great. You know, so we talk through that and then I say like, Hey, you know, usually we like to monitor, you know, baby for a little bit just to see, check on baby's health, see kind of what contractions you're having. Have you been feeling any contractions? Oh, no, no, not really, not yet. Okay. You know, would it be okay if we got, you know, a little monitor strip on the baby? Sure. You say yes, or you say like, eh, no, I don't really want to do that right now. Oh, okay. Would it be okay if I just maybe listen to the baby's heart rate with a Doppler, just like they do at your appointments? Oh, yeah, sure. That's fine. Okay. Great. So, right. Is my policy to get a strip from my hospital when you come in? Sure. I'm supposed to get at least 20 minutes to know the baby's well. Am I going to do that against your consent if you don't want that right now? No. Right. Nope. It's this patient-centered care. This is people over policies. I am not going to touch someone who does not want to be touched. I am not going to do something to their body that they do not want to have done to it. There are so many people that fear retaliation from their nurses. Can we speak to that? Because it's real. It is real. It's very real. There are nurses that as soon as that person says, I don't want... I don't want continuous monitoring. I don't want to be in bed for that. I don't want to do this. It's like they throw their hands up. If this is a difficult patient, she walked in with her doula and I know what I'm in for. So can how yeah. do we, I mean, I guess you're doing it, right? You're working with nurses to understand that it's not. Yeah. Not but I mean, right. Who's seeking a specific experience. Yeah. And so I think part of it is just, I think there's, again, that's a multimodal issue, but first off it's real. It is valid. You know, I am a nurse. I love being a nurse. I think of myself as a caring professional and and I've worked with amazing nurses throughout the years, but we're not all awesome. And that's just is what it is. You know, no one is perfect. Just because someone is a nurse or a doctor or a midwife doesn't mean that they're a great person or that they're having a great day that day or, you know, anything like that. So I think first off, it's just honestly like that is a real thing. You know, like I think sometimes people, we can feel very defensive. I would never do that. You know, like, oh, I, I would never make a patient feel uncomfortable like that. Right. Okay. I would never intentionally do that. Me? Have I done that in the past? Of course I have. Because I'm human. Right. And because I, I have come up in this flawed system because I had to work really hard and learn different ways of doing it than had necessarily been taught to me. So I also have looked back at interactions I've had with folks and cringe mm-hmm. thinking like, oh, I can't believe I can't believe I did that. It's so hard to look back on that. And I I do that often as I learn, but I I try to be easy on myself because it means I'm growing. It means I'm learning. Absolutely. And that's, you know, it's the truth. And so I think nurses, sometimes when we hear this, we think like, no, I would never. And it's just really easy to stay like defensive and stop that. But I think healthcare professionals who are listening to this right now have to remember like, of course you have. Right. Because you're human, because we make mistakes, because you don't ha- every day isn't perfect. So, like when someone is is fearful of us, when someone is worried about the interactions that they're having, that like that is coming from a valid place. Yeah. They're not being dramatic, or they're not just trying to give you a hard time, or any of these things that you hear. Mm-hmm. Like that's not what it's coming from. It's probably coming from a personal experience of theirs or another loved one that they are wary about. So, and I think for nurses, that happens because of how we've been educated. Yeah, because 
our liability in folks' births has been driven into our head in a overwhelming way. So I would love for you to speak to that a little bit because I'm sitting here as a birthing person who gave birth in a hospital twice, who has attended many, many, many births in hospitals, who doesn't actually get to see the nursing education. And more importantly, and this is sort of what I'd like you to speak to, and maybe it's all in the education, but maybe not. I would like to see you paint a picture of the other side of the pressure because it feels like nurses get caught in this place where you're told that you need to advocate for your patients, that you need to protect your license, that you need to protect yourself from liability. You need to really like there, you have to navigate this system. At the same time, the hospital is paying your salary. They are your direct employers. You're working for the hospital. Sometimes you're working for the doctors if they're staff doctors. Sometimes you're not. What does it look like when you step out of the labor and delivery room and you have somebody who has refused consent? What happens when you're not getting the things that you need on your checklist? Like, can you paint a picture of like that pressure that nurses find themselves in? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you spelled out a lot of it there. There is this feeling of being in the middle and there's also this piece of hospital, whatever, that if there is something, if there is a job that like doesn't fit handily into someone's description, the nurse can do it. Or like, oh, X, Y, and Z called out today. Well, the nurse will just draw labs. Well, the nurse can do the trays. The nurse can do this. So nurses are just constantly put as like, we can and should be able to do everything for everyone. Mm. So that puts a lot of pressure on us for starters. And then there is that whole piece of absolutely we're supposed to be there as advocates. That's a big thing. It's in all like the nurse code of ethics and everything. But it, most of us get absolutely no formal training or education around right. what that means. Well, as if advocacy is, is easy. You're advocating for. against your own boss, which is an insane position right. to be to have it drilled into you that you have to advocate for your patient. But often again, it's against your boss, the hospital policies, or a doctor that you don't work for and who I'm yeah. assuming, just from what I've seen, like has way higher rank and more pull than you yeah, ever will. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's like a big there's a big piece of that that policies are set up for staff protection. Mm. And that's like hard to say, it's hard to hear, it's hard to like believe sometimes. Sure, sure, certainly they are built under the guise of this will keep, you know, birthing people and babies the safest. But that's but, not the truth. But ultimately it comes down to this is the thing that we are going to do to be able to prove to a court of law mm-hmm. that we did the right thing that, yep, this was like a reasonable policy. Now these policies, they are not always evidence-based. They haven't always been updated recently. They can be very driven by individual providers on the floor, whoever is kind of in charge of doing that. Um, And so again, that's just the reality of it. Policies are really more there to give staff a guideline for what to do, but they are not always patient-centered. And again, that can be different. You know, someone will hear this and be like, of course, all of our patients. And I'm glad you work at a place where that is true. But, but for the vast majority of places I've worked, that is not what drives policy. Honestly, like, I think whoever's defending, like, one single doctor that's great, like, or one single hospital or one L&D that has an early labor lounge, whatever, that's great. And we need so much more of that. But women are dying in this country. (laughs) Women are getting injured in this country. Women are struggling to navigate this maternal health care system in a way that keeps them alive and healthy and whole on the other side. And that's just like the the basic facts. You know, it's just, I feel like that's something that's really, that's in black and white, literally. That's, that's, we're failing our mothers 
on a systemic level. And so we need to do something to address it. And this power structure that you're talking about both, you know, it's like you started out by saying, oh, well, the power structure between the nurse and the patient. But when we take a step back, look at the power structure the nurse then has to deal with, with her bosses and her staff and her position within the, the hierarchy of the hospital. It's really just this sort of like this continuation. So who is holding the power then? Right. And so that's why I feel like, you know, if you walk out of a room and so in this imaginary admission that we're doing now, um, you know, where I come out and I say like, hey, Caitlin doesn't want to be monitored right now. So I, you know, I did top tones, baby heart rate looks great. 140. She's not feeling any contractions. Boop. You know, and maybe I'm telling this to my charge nurse. I want to have someone else who's like aware of what's going on with it, you know, with the person I'm caring for, if I'm not right there, you know, and chances are they're going to reel back and be like, well, why didn't you get a strip on her? Yeah. Because now they're, they're sensing that like, okay, well now I'm liable. I'm the charge nurse on here. Like I am, I am in charge of what is happening on the unit and making sure that everyone's safe. And we don't even have this patient on a monitor. So how are we going to do that? Right. So there's going to be that first pushback of like, and it's, and it's coming from that sense of, I am doing the wrong thing right. and because I am not going to be able to say why it was it's safe. It's not that somebody declined care, not refused care, declined care or declined right. something. Chose a different route of care. It's that right. you failed as a nurse. So that's the first right. sort of blowback. Right. So the first feeling is I failed as a nurse. Yeah. My job is to go in. I have these 10 things I have to do in admission. I didn't get her in the gown. She didn't give me a pee sample. I didn't even get her on the monitor. And she was on the phone right then. So she actually asked me to come back and do the questions later. So I've admitted her, but frankly, no, I didn't do anything that I've done that I'm supposed to do, you know? So partly that's feeling like that pressure of like whatever. Cause also I don't know what's going to come in right now. Caitlin's my first patient of the night, but I don't know in 10 minutes, I could get told that another labor is coming in and that they're also going to be in my care. So now I've got these two people, no one's admission paperwork is done. I don't have them in the computer the right way. I didn't get a chance to draw the labs that I'm supposed to do. I don't have them on the strip. So when I'm in the monitor, is anyone else going to be checking on this person? Like, it's all of these things that are circling around your head as the nurse, as you're trying to figure out, like, what does this mean that the person in my care wants to do things differently than the way that I am comfortable doing it or the way that I have been trained to do it? So that's a huge piece of, like, pushback that you have to recognize in yourself as a nurse, you know? So then I say to to the charge nurse, like, well, yeah, she doesn't want it. So I told her, you know, she said she needed a couple minutes to finish talking to her mom on, you know, on the phone. And then she's going to hit the button when she's ready to come back in and we'll get the rest of the process started. Um, she was also a little bit unclear about what was going to be happening with the induction process. So I really want to make sure that we walk it through. And when you see Dr. So-and-so, we need to go in and have like another conversation about care and make sure like I saw the consents were signed in the chart, but Caitlin doesn't understand why she's here. So we need to like backpedal a little bit there. Right now, I can say that very nice and easy. This is very like a low stress situation talking to you on a podcast, but that feels very different yeah. in the hospital, right? Because now I'm one like I'm saying I'm doing things differently. Yep. I'm like pushing back against some discomfort, and there's other nurses at the desk who are kind of looking over at me like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and and one of them might even be like, "Do you want me to just go in and do it?" Like, okay, is this about you? Like, you're just like not getting how to do it. Like, are you feeling overwhelmed? Are you busy? Like, you know, like, okay, what do you, what do you, do you need help? And they're not saying that from a bad place. They're saying that from like a, hey, we're all a team. So like, okay, what do you, do you want me to go just start our IV? No, nope. She actually wasn't ready for the IV right now, you know, but like that we have to like acknowledge that. And then I'm also kind of calling into question whoever the provider was who had this 
consent or this induction conversation with her because clearly some steps were missed for some reason. I don't know why. And it, again, that's not anyone's like fault per se. Maybe the maybe Caitlin was super distracted right. when she was at that appointment and she just didn't she didn't take it in. Like that's okay. She had other stuff on her or, mind. She just has some questions that need answered. Maybe. Right. You have a big baby, it's time because he had a golf game or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. I mean, like maybe they just said, like, oh, I think it's time for that induction. And they were just like, Oh, sure, I know plenty of people have been induced. Okay. Yeah. Like, and that's that's fine, as in it happens often and is a frequent occurrence. Yeah. And and the person in care isn't necessarily worried about it, but you also, I don't feel comfortable with that. Right. I cannot keep going forward with this, you know. So I'm calling into question that. So all of this, I also have to make sure that, like, I'm concerned about how am I charting this? Mm-hmm. So, like, how am I charting and being accountable to what is happening in care right now? And so I'll say the one thing is, like, so typically most charting things I've learned are very, like, they're very liability focused. It's very about, like, making sure that you have covered yourself and the team and that you're never charting anything that makes it seem as if anyone else wasn't doing what they were supposed to do that you know blah 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 and it's very focused around like if this came under a court and you are reviewing what you wrote are you going to understand what happened are you going to be able to defend your things did you adequately say everything was going on there and a big piece of policy is driven around that idea so if you did all these policies then you're just going to say yep i was following our unit's policy right and so you're protected so that protects me yes. a little bit as a nurse from like a professional liability, my license kind of piece of it. However, the more trauma-informed and patient-centered way of charting, and Jen Atkinson is um, is a labor and delivery nurse and an uh, expert witness who's dealt with this ton. She has a lot of research around this, so it's something we can certainly like share for folks who want to like get into this deeper. But she has shared a ton of resources around it, and I like the way that her framework for going about it is completely about like patient-centered. So the point of the chart is to reflect the care the situation that is happening. So instead, I just chart. Caitlin arrived for induction. Uh, you know, Caitlin says she's actually not sure why she's here, but yeah, you know, the baby was big. It's, you know, her due date was last week, so she thinks this is where she's supposed to be. Caitlin um, declines continuous monitoring at this time. States she feels more comfortable just doing a Doppler check like they do at her regular appointments. Doppler, you know, Doppler check done. Heart tones in the 140s you know, no D cells, audible, whatever, you know, so I chart all these words we use to right. explain that like, this is what happened, but that is what I actually need to do to set up a safe care environment for you as the birthing person. That's right. So I'm just saying what happened and it's yeah, not in a blamey right. way. I'm not right. I'm just, it's just a, rec- a record of what happened yeah. so that, and I could, and I could look back two years from now that somehow this has come up in a lawsuit. I need to review that. I would say, Oh yeah, I remember Caitlin. Yep. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. Right. We walked through that okay, we did this. I'm not putting judgment into my things. I'm not saying Caitlin refused to be monitored. Nope. Caitlin chose to be monitored with a Doppler. She wants to do intermittent auscultation right now. Okay. That's it. There's no, it's not a judgment value. And it also reflects it. Like I understood our policy. I understood what I would typically offer. I offered it. Great. So I upheld kind of like my side of standard of care. Is it like, okay, we're going to offer everyone a strip when they come in to see how baby's doing and see what their contraction pattern is. So doing it that way helps us. And that's what I think needs to change. So in terms of this like big change we're witnessing, it's putting the patient there. And instead of thinking like, I'm supposed to do it this way because it's how I've always done it. It's saying, okay, the patient does not want it that way. And they had a choice in it. They had a choice. They were offered this and they chose that. And so then my job to protect the patient, again, is to be aware of that. So if when I had instead, let's say I did that dop tone and I heard something concerning, I heard something that sounded like a D cell to me, I would say, 
Caitlin, I heard what sounded like a D-cell there where there's a drop in your baby's heart rate. That's concerning to me. Could I put you on the monitor for a few minutes so we could just get a little bit more information Mm -hmm. as we go to decide that? Right. And again, it's a choice. You are your own person. That is your baby. I have now explained what I am seeing, right? And you get to choose. Now, obviously, most people, if they hear that, are going to say like, oh, okay, sure. I mean, you can monitor for a few minutes and see what's going on. But also, it's about doing it in a way that explains like, this is what's going on, but not fear-mongering. Not, I'm not saying like, your baby sounds terrible in the monitor. I have to put the monitor on right now or else your baby's going to die. Because people literally do say stuff like that. It's completely inappropriate and not helpful. It's horrific. And it really sets up this dynamic where it's like, it's as if the medical team cares more about your baby than you do. And like, God forbid you actually have a desire to like do something. Absolutely. Um, One of the things that's really striking me about this picture you're painting, and you're doing such an incredible job of really painting this picture of being admitted for a totally routine induction with no contractions. I mean, this woman that you're describing and this baby is like the most like low risk. It's just, it doesn't sound like there's anything of note. And yet you're talking about charting with the idea of this being read in court. And I'm thinking about how the entire system is really set up for the absolute worst case scenario. And it feels like all of these policies in these hospitals and in the system are look at women and birthing people as ticking time bombs that at any given point can explode, can, can just with no warning, everything can devolve and their licenses are at stake and their malpractice insurance is at stake and their livelihood is at stake. And I just, I feel the stress as I'm listening to you because I'm listening to you know, you portray this like super, it's a woman that's like just pregnant. She could be in a shopping mall. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. She could be at home. This is not an emergency. It's not an emergency at all. And yet there is this sort of underlying vibration of she is emergent and could be at any moment and we need to document. And this entire system is set up looking at pregnant people as as liabilities, as a way that could bring down a doctor, a midwife, a nurse, a hospital system. And yep. so when I'm thinking about who does who actually holds the power, it almost becomes like the lawyers hold the power, the courts hold the power, the administrators of the hospital who are trying to protect their for-profit companies from liability. Yeah. The insurance companies who decide what we get to do and what's reimbursed and what's yes. allowed. This is, yeah. this is wild to me. So, yeah. So, um, I want to ask one thing, because when we talked yeah. about having this, I just want to float this by you. I floated this by my my very good friend who just retired. She's a midwife uh, near me, and, sh- and she had ideas about it, and I want to discuss that further with her. But you're really, like, entrenched in this medical system, but also the advocacy part. So I, I look at insurance reimbursement as um, – as problematic for how doctors are incentivized. So mm-hmm. as, you know, as somebody who's leading my own organization, you constantly think about like, how are we incentivizing, you know, the families to engage with us? How are we incentivizing professionals to engage with us? How am I incentivizing my own team? How are we, how are we staying motivated in an automatic way, right? Like how can we set mm-hmm. this up so it feels good for everybody? And when I look at, incentives for doctors and reimbursement rates, I have this crazy idea and it's crazy. And it's like, 
probably won't ever happen, but I just want to float it. What right, happen if we somehow could put together some sort of coalition and a lobbying firm and whatever we needed to do? I don't know what it would look like. And we got insurance companies to switch the reimbursement rates for C-sections versus vaginal deliveries. What happens if vaginal deliveries get reimbursed that that doctor gets $40,000 in his pocket for every vaginal birth that he catches and he gets $25,000 for every C-section he does? Right. What does that look like after that goes into place? Or is that even like a reasonable idea? Yeah, totally hear what you're saying. And I think that's something that a lot of people like kind of catch on to as like one thing I will say on a couple of things like one I understand that there is a higher cost of surgery literally there is a higher cost of surgery in terms of who has to be involved and time of staff and whatever so I don't obviously I don't think it was created at a higher rate out of a a bad thing absolutely that said I also the vast a lot of the um every every hospital is different every practice is different for physicians. Um, I know many who do not get reimbursed for each um, birth that they are a part of. They are salaried and um, they do not get reimbursed. Obviously, some places do. So again, every practice is different. Um, But I also just want to call it that let it not always, um, they don't always necessarily, like if you're on call shift and there are 10 babies that are born that weekend, you're going to get the same amount as the person who pulled the call last weekend and had one baby born in some practices. Which that's actually really insightful. But I wonder though, somebody, the hospital is still getting. Someone's getting that money. Somebody's getting paid for that. So. I'm just wondering if we could like, because I feel like there's like probably a hundred different things we could do to like early labor lounges and, you know, doulas on floor and trainings in this and trainings in that. But if like, I mean, this is what I did with Be Her Village, right? It's like, we need money for support. We need women. Yeah. We need birthing people to have access to support. Well, how do we do that? We go after the money. The money is at the baby shower. So let's create Be Her Village. Yeah. People get money for those baby shower gifts to spend on their support. Boom. Problem solved. $12 billion spent on baby gifts. Now at least, you know, $25,000 so far, but we're going we're gonna to keep going until a really yeah. good portion of that is being spent on support gifts. So what if we looked at the, what if we looked at the reimbursement for and and I know I mean I get that the incentive like wasn't the thought it was more just like well it costs more to do surgery than it does to have a vaginal right. birth but let's say we raise like a hundred million dollars and we said we will cover the difference our organization you know mm-hmm. C-section reduction committee will will yeah. pay the difference so let's say C-sections are forty thousand dollars will will cover that difference and we'll actually give you sixty thousand dollars for every baby you catch vaginally, whether it goes to the hospital or the doctor or whatever. Would that change things? Is money that much of a driving factor or is it the liability? In your opinion, obviously you're not. Right. Yeah. I can't speak for everyone, whatever. So obviously I don't want to sound whatever. Money drives tons of things. I would say though, in this case, I think that money would be better spent on support services that facilitate physiologic births. Mm. And so I would say that is my, like, again, in this big change thing, it's one, it's patient centered and two, tying into all these concerns we have around liability where everyone's a ticking time bomb and people have been trust, have been trained not to trust birth. Yeah. Two, it's the collaborative care around physiologic birth. So if we had this money that we could put into anything, 
rather than reimbursing the hospital or the physician who are already the highest paid folks Mm -hmm. in the lot. Instead, we are reimbursing for doulas and pelvic PTs and more lactation and extra tools Mm -hmm. to have. We're paying for better staffing ratios so that in labor, folks are one-to-one. So the nurse isn't going back and forth between two patients. They are just focused on that person. We're paying extra so that there is a particular nurse who's been trained in, say, spinning babies and pelvic biodynamics and understands that, who's popping into every room Mm -hmm. to see, hey, oh, wait, oh, what's going on? All right, let's see if we could try this position. We are reimbursing for doulas, and I have issue with how doula reimbursement is being rolled out at this point. So we're reimbursing for the doula, the support person, who the birthing person wants. Because again, this is about patient-centered. This is not about me saying that I think XYZ doula training organization is doing the best job, because that's malarkey, Mm -hmm. right? And because of all those issues we talked about at the very beginning of this episode, we know that doula training organizations are not created equally, that they do not serve all people equally. And that the folks who are most marginalized in our system need to be able to have the power to pick the doula and the support people who they want and who best understand them and are going to support their needs. And so reimbursement has to happen differently. It can't all just be, oh, we have a hospital doula program because that gets into all those issues we talked about before. Not, and I don't have an issue with hospital doula programs necessarily. I think they serve an important piece of it, but they're not, not the end the all answer. deal. I 100% right. agree. First of all, most of them are volunteers. And that's problematic right. on its own. We're not right. often paid well. Time and labor. Um, right. But then you also have this like, well, who, where are hospital volunteer doulas in that power hierarchy that we exactly. discussed? They are at the very, very bottom. Right. At the least, right. they're not being paid well. They don't have any power in the situation. They're quasi employed by the oh, hospital no. again. It gets into all that. I remember being right. in a, a, a doula setting. I was the doula, and I was in a hospital that had a volunteer doula program. And they actually asked if the volunteer doula that was on right then could come and shadow me for that birth. I said, absolutely. And the doctor, who was a piece of work, waltzed in and like, demanded to see our identification and she like hurriedly like just was like so nervous and was showing him her ID and I just looked at him and I said I don't work for you and I don't work here and that was the end and it sort of just immediately put me on this on my own footing of just like I am not part of this system and so it really as I think hospital dualists uh are wonderful and a great thing and it but it's a yes and situation we yes we should have hospital doulas and volunteer doulas and we should be helping people get the funds to pay for doulas and all of their support staff on their own yeah. of their choosing. Because that's what I really – and that is, I really think like that difference. Like I absolutely agree with you because we know money fuels things. Incentivizing physiologic birth practices is really important mm-hmm. as we bring all together. And again, I think that comes back to this whole like this trauma-informed, patient-centered, collaborative care that I envision – is because we all have different skill sets. And the way our system is set up right now, there is an intense amount of pressure on the OB to be everything, mm-hmm. right? And obstetrician, gynecologists, obviously they're very well educated. They've had years of practicing as residents and gone through medical school. They've done all this stuff. So they have a ton of knowledge about stuff. They have not also trained as a nurse. They have not also trained as a public PT. They haven't trained, and I'm saying all these. Obviously, are there some who probably have done all these sure. things, of course? Like, but the average, <laughs> the average OB out there like Matthew, hasn't also, <laughs> yeah, they haven't also become an IBCLC. Yeah. They all also aren't a doula. They haven't been trained in all this stuff. So we put so much pressure on them that they are supposed to be everything mm-hmm. 
for the how many patients are under their care. That is not fair to anyone involved. We are robbing everyone of a good experience. And so if instead we picture physiologic birth support that recognizes the need for collaborative care so that when Caitlin comes in and she says, oh, I don't really want that, but I realize like, oh, you know what? You would be a great candidate to like have a doula in here. But I, again, this would obviously be happening ideally during like prenatal care. So you could establish a relationship with that person. But even then, again, in this world or whatever, okay, great. So we have this doula pool who we can call and be like, hey, Caitlin could use a little bit more support in there, some more education. Let's make sure she has a doula with her. Um, you know, that I, that need would be identified early. And again, in, in prenatal care, instead of expecting like the OB bill to figure out everything that's going on with your body and everything that you would need and the extras you're going to do, like, right, we get you hooked up to prenatal exercise program and nutrition with an actual nutritionist, with someone who, again, who has actually studied this for years on their own, instead of them saying, oh, Kaylin, you actually have gestational diabetes, blah, 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 cut carbs. Mm-hmm. That was not helpful. That's not enough information. That doesn't tell you what you need. You need a nutritionist who's going to look at you, who's right. going to understand your individual health history, like, who's going to look at your eating habits. <laughs> what's a carb? Right. It, you know what I mean? Like that's not – but that's what, again, in the system, that's how much time people yes. have, you know, yeah. and that's what that, – so that ends up happening. We end up with these really reductive policies. So instead of when we're getting it in and we realize like, hey, you could use like a pelvic PT because you're actually having a ton of pain when you're – like it's – you don't have to be waddling just because you're eight months pregnant. Like let's see if we can strengthen some of this up and work on this. Like you don't have to have all these issues. So instead if we looked at us as we are truly a team and not in like a – like I, I think we th- we say we're a team. But so often it is actually just like, uh, you know, if it's football, like, yep, the quarterback is the physician, you know, and the rest of us are like also doing our stuff. But so many of us are like actually on the sidelines. We're like cheerleaders trying to do stuff. We're not actually part of the mix. And so we need to change it so that there actually is like we drop down the power dynamics. We all collectively get over the feeling that, one, the liability piece of it. Like, we need to change the way we have discussions with people. We need to change the way that we engage around that. Because we also know that, unfortunately, not every birth does go well. Not every pregnancy ends with a healthy, viable baby, which is tragic and terrible. And I will never understand that Mm -hmm. (laughs) well enough. But we have to recognize that, like, sometimes terrible things are going to happen. But that does not mean that we need to treat all of those 4 million people in our country who are trying to have a baby as if they are going to be the person who has that terrible thing happen. and so impact our policies and impact what they do with their body that in fact we end up causing more issues than we were if we were just supporting physiological birth and that's a huge that is like a huge multi-step process that we all need to collectively work through but i think if we had this team approach and this collaborative care where we really trusted all of each other to to uh, to just to know what we're good mm-hmm. at i am a great nurse i am i would not be a great doctor i'm not a great nutritionist i'm not like i am not all these other roles because that's not my job. So sure, I can do some of the things that the doctor also do. I can do some things that nutrition also does. I can do some things that the IBC also does. Like, yeah, I have like, there's some overlap, but that's not where you're going to see me shine. So if instead we took off that pressure to be all, I don't have to be all for everyone as their nurse. I can't. And if you trust your colleagues to all be on the same page, which is showing up for each person without fear, without emergency, without worrying about liability, but actually showing up to give them the best experience, it would look really different. It would look totally different. So it really is. Two things we're changing. It's patient-centered. Yeah. Like we walked through the whole beginning. Everything is just around who is this person? What do they want? We're asking questions. And two, we are actually operating in a team environment where we trust the other people who are with us. We believe that we all have this patient 
in the center because we literally do, (laughs) we would have a completely different healthcare system. I can't wait for it to be like that. I am holding space for the fact that it will one day. Maggie, this was so much fun to talk this out with you. I want to do this again because I feel like you need a part two to this. Um, I would love for you to just sort of plug the work that you're doing in this space with your birth partners and talk a little bit about that and tell people how to find you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love this conversation. Obviously I could talk about this all day. Um, but yeah, so your birth partners is our nonprofit organization. And so our mission is to cultivate inclusive, collaborative birth care communities that are rooted in autonomy, respect, and equity. And so what we have done as part of that, we have several programs um, that we you know, administer. One is about getting more accessible education for birth workers. So that looks like conferences and trainings um, that are often done by folks who are outside of the big system, who aren't part of like the major conference leaders, because we believe that there is value in the voices that other people in our community share and perspectives that are so often marginalized. So we um, participate in doing a lot of kind of like training sponsorships and scholarships and stuff like that around that. Um, We also have our evidence-based birth imperative program. So that is where we have partnered with um, several evidence-based birth instructors to bring evidence-based birth childbirth education classes to black and brown uh, members of their community because we recognize the systemic issue of racism. Because again, it's always about racism, not race, just like Dr. Joya Career Perry says, um, that is causing these disparities in our care. So these racism-driven disparities um, have to be addressed on several different levels. But one way that we can do that is by making sure that folks who are getting ready to have a baby have been well-educated, know their rights, know their options, understand where are the places that they can push back, that they can question things. Um, And so we've been really, really excited to um, partner with Denise and Michelle and Meredith and Sasha to bring this to their communities and show up how we can do this better, how we can make sure we do that. So we absolutely would love for people to, um, you know, participate and donate if that calls to your heart as well, because we would love to be able to offer more of those classes and sponsor more folks in that. And then Trauma-Informed Birth Nurse, which I mentioned earlier, um, is the big education program that we've done with Mandy and Paula um, to really just change the way that labor and birth nurses approach their patients. How do we bring trauma-informed birth um, care to the bedside, what does it actually look like in practice? Because it's one thing to hear about trauma-informed care and feel like, yeah, of course I'm trauma-informed. I know what to do if someone says that they've had trauma. And you may, but what we are looking at is, you know, our definition of it is that this is one piece of organizational change that has to happen on every different level so that we recognize the individual as the leader of their own health. And by doing this, we mitigate the power dynamic struggles that so often happen in that. So trauma-informed care is patient-centered. Um, and we we really believe it. It's, I am so proud to be a part of that program and the different perspectives and voices and educators we've brought into it to really help folks understand how you can put this into practice at the bedside, what it feels like to be a nurse who's doing that, because it feels so much better as a nurse, and obviously it's so much better for the people we're taking care of. It's amazing. Maggie, you are doing hugely important things, and I'm so grateful for your time. I'm so grateful for your energy. I'm just I'm Aww. grateful to have had this conversation with you, so thank you for that. Thank, thank you, Caitlin, for having a space for this conversation. I look forward to more. Yeah, me too.